Good evening. So, Ruth chapter 4, would you like to turn to that? So, I'll read that now. Let's just uh, bow our heads and, and pray first. Heavenly Father, as we hear your word now, as we seek to sit under your word together, please turn our hearts towards you. Please open our eyes and please transform us because of your loving kindness to us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Ruth chapter 4. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. And then he said to, to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his handle and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilian and Marlon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Marlon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. And then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah, and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception. And she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. 
he shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. Well, you know, I love this story so much um, that we gave one of our daughters the name Ruth. That's how much I love the story. Um, but let me begin by asking you a question. What was the most expensive gift or present that anyone has ever given you? Why is it that the wives are giving their husbands a dig in their... In their, in their um, chest at the moment. Are you thinking about that question? And you youngsters as well, what's the most expensive gift that anyone has ever given you? Is there anybody that's brave enough to shout out the answer to that? A ring, a bit of jewellery, a bit of bling. Life, who said that? Oh, go to the top of the class. Great. Yeah. Let me give you mine. Okay, July 1988, my 17th birthday, my dad brought me a brand new 950cc Ford Fiesta. Ooh, yeah. Jet black, registration F33FUE. You never forget your first registration plate, do you? Um, it even had, wait for it, it even had a radio. There was a radio inside. Amazing. I don't know what the most expensive gift that you've ever been given is. Um, but gifts, of course, are one way in which we say to other people, I love you. And as we come to the end of this story today, we're going to discover that the man in the story, Boaz, gives a very expensive gift. And we may have to do a bit of work in order to be able to see that. But, you know, it's very, very important because we need to see that all the happiness that comes about at the end of this story only comes about because of this costly, selfless gift. The end of the story tells us that every blessing comes only through a costly redemption. So um, I think somebody's doing the slides for us. If we could just put that up so we can keep track of where we're getting to. So let's just have a look at that costly redemption in verses 1 to 10. Before we dive in, let's just track back to chapter 3 and verse 12. Uh, could a volunteer just read that out to me? Chapter 3 and verse 12 for everybody. 
Now, in school, we have a, 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 a random name generator, okay, if people won't answer the questions. You don't want me to use the random name generator, do you? Naomi, thank you. Yes, you could carry on, actually, to, uh, to the end, re remain tonight. Thank you, Naomi. That's great. So now, uh, if you turn forward to chapter 4 and verse 1, now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken in chapter 3, came by. So chapter 3 um, closes at night, and chapter 4 opens into the light. And we're at the city gate, which is the ancient equivalent of the village square. It was the centre of community life. And the nearer redeemer from chapter 3, well, he says, just happened to come by. And that's great, isn't it? Another one of those God instances that we've seen come up so many times in the story. Reminding us that God may be behind every scene, but he moves every scene that he's behind. And he and Boaz sit down, along with ten elder statesmen, if you like, of the town, verse 2. And have a look at verses 3 to 6. And you'll see that Boaz gives the other man first refusal on buying the family land, which he said would also mean marrying Ruth, in verse 5. So let's pause there and consider what's going on. Firstly, what is this family land? And why is this other man getting first refusal to buy it? And why is it that he seems really keen at first and then seems to change his mind? First of all, what's this family land? Well, we need to track back in the Bible story and remember that every family that God brought out of Egypt was given a plot of land in Canaan under God's direction, um, which was theirs to keep forever. And so, in a way, I want you to see that it represented for them, if you like, their family share in the eternal promises of God. It was very, very important. God had kept his promise to bring them out of the land of slavery to a land of freedom, and this parcel of land, apart from being of practical use, because you could farm it, um, was visible proof that God, who was faithful to his promises, would continue to be faithful to this family into the future. So it's very, very important. And now, in chapter 1, Naomi's husband has moved Naomi and the family away from Canaan to Moab, leaving that parcel of land that they'd had and that was theirs. Now, what happens when a plot of land becomes available uh, on, an allot on an allotment, say, for example? What's the allotment near here? Um, that people have plots on. Okay, I mean, there's a big waiting list for, for allotment plots, isn't there? All right? So what happens if a piece becomes available? 
it goes quickly, doesn't it? Because people want it. It doesn't stay vacant for long. And it's the same in Bethlehem. You don't leave good farming land to waste for years. So the elders of Bethlehem probably said something like this. Anybody want to have this land to farm? You can't have it to keep because Elimelech and the family may come back. Um, so, yeah, who give me, I don't know, who give me 500 pounds on the condition that you get the right to farm that land um, in the meantime, and you'll get most of that 500 pounds back if and when Elimelech and his family come back. He'll give me 500 pounds. He'll give me 500 pounds. Who here will give me 500 pounds? Rich, thank you. Sold to the man over there. Okay, so he buys the plot of land. Rich buys um, the plot of land. Um, now, fast forward in our story, Naomi's back, she's penniless, she hasn't got the money she needs to buy the land back from Rich, okay? She needs somebody else to do that for her, and in our story, that's the kinsman redeemer. It's called the kinsman redeemer. A kinsman redeemer is a kind of close relative who's obligated by law to step in and rescue Naomi from destitution, and in this case, to redeem the land, to get it back off rich. So what happens in the story here? Well, verse 4, have a look down at it. I will redeem it, the guy says. I will give rich the 500 pounds. Now, before you think this guy is generous, think again. He's done the sums, okay? This is what he's thinking. When, in, when Naomi does eventually die, he'll get the land forever. Naomi hasn't got any children to pass the land on to. They died, remember. So he's done the sums, and for him it's a win-win. But then barely a verse later, he changes his mind. Why so? Well, look down with me at verse 5. Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite. Six times in the book, Ruth is uh, mentioned as a Moabite. She's given that label to emphasize and remind us that Ruth was not the kind of girl that nice boys marry. Okay? The day you buy the field from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Well, what's that about? Well, Boaz reminds him of another of God's kind laws at the time, which meant that any redeemer who should marry Ruth, uh, any, any, any redeemer who would buy the land would also need to marry Ruth and care for Ruth along with Naomi, provide protection for Ruth as well, and raise a family with Ruth to then inherit the family land. So now can you see this is a kind of two for the price of one deal that doesn't really add up very well any longer. And so, verse 6, he says, in that case, I can't redeem it, lest I impair my own inheritance. In other words, this redemption endangers the man's estate financially and also reputationally, because Ruth is a Moabite. And it all sounds very sensible. 
the kind of sensible calculation that I make when I work out whether something's going to work or not. But it's all very sad as well, isn't it? And we want to point the finger at this man for being so selfish in his sensibleness. But then, of course, the finger points back at us and our oh-so-sensible and oh-so-selfish way of calculating whether something's going to work for us. And it seems so sad, but then verse 7, look what happens. I will do it. I will be the redeemer, says Boaz. And then look down at verses 7 to 10. Boaz redeems. Have a look at that in 7 to 10. You know, the nearer Redeemer's refusal to redeem helps us to see that this was a costly redemption for Boaz. And all of the blessings that come next in the story only come because of his costly redemption. And in the bigger story, every blessing we experience and look forward to only comes because there has been a far costlier redemption. You know, Boaz was a nearer kinsman redeemer, and Jesus, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on flesh to be our near kinsman redeemer. And redemption for Boaz was costly, Jesus redeemed us not with perishable things, silver and gold, but with his precious blood. The precious blood who, as we were hearing this morning, was in the beginning with God and was God. Naomi and Ruth did nothing in these verses but look on from the wings as Boaz redeemed. And in the same way, we contribute nothing whatsoever to our redemption. No works, no religion, nothing but the grace of God. This was the Pentecostal church. I'll get an amen here. Okay. I've lined up a video about the father and the son. Because um, I just want our hearts to worship, really, as we, as we think about this. As we see the gospel here in this story... As you watch this uh, video now, consider the choices the son made in the beginning that had no beginning to be your rescuer and redeemer. The son saw the world. He loved the world. He knew the world would be the death of him. He knew it would cost him everything. And knowing all that, he said, let me go. Let me go. What's the most expensive gift you've been given? And one more detail to point out before we move on. The sandals. Can't forget the sandals. Look down at verses 7 and 8. And you'll see that this swapping of sandals was a way to make something legal and watertight. 
Does anybody have a problem with odd socks at home? Back in the day, you'd probably have had a problem with odd sandals because land transactions in those days were signed, sealed, and sandaled. But that detail matters because we see that this costly redemption is absolutely legal, watertight, and secure. And in the same way, Christ's redemption for us fulfills the requirements of the law completely. It is watertight. It is secure. So we can have full assurance. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the sin within, upwards I look and see him there who fulfilled God's law completely, fully. Full assurance. And we do so need to hear that, don't we? We do so need to be reminded about that. Well, let me move on. When I was 16, I won a competition that was sponsored by a, uh, a local firm. Uh, and the prize was a meal to the Burnie Inn. Remember those? Followed by a tour of this company's factory. The day arrived and the host said at the Burnie Inn, order whatever you like. Order whatever you like. I ordered a, a hearty starter and then the biggest steak on the menu, together with all the trimmings, the chips, the mushrooms, the onion rings, and then the puddings, Knickerbocker glory, to end all Knickerbocker glories. Young people, ask your parents about the Knickerbocker glory. Well, two things I remember next. Sitting in the toilet cubicle, breathing heavily and wondering if I would ever get out of that restaurant without a stretcher. And I remember spending the afternoon hiding so I wouldn't have to go on the tour and endure the pain of going on that tour with such a fullness. Okay. So anyway, that was an unhappy fullness. Okay. But Ruth ends with a happy fullness, completely different. And I don't know if you noticed, but the last 11 verses focus on that happy fullness. Naomi's transformation from emptiness in chapter 1 to fullness. And these blessings anticipate a greater fullness to come in Christ. Remember Naomi in chapter 1 when she said, Don't call me Naomi, call me Mara for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. So how does the narrator in our story underline the journey from emptiness there in chapter 1 to fullness at the end of the story? Well, here are some things to notice very briefly. Underline Redeemer in verse 14. Got it there? Verse 14. Underline Redeemer. Obed is a redeemer to Naomi because now her family line will continue and the family will provide for Naomi in her old age too. Underline lap in verse 16, lap. Obed is laid in Naomi's lap. It's a lovely vivid picture. And next to, to lap, write chapter 3 verse 15. 
because Boaz, if you remember, emptied grain into Ruth's lap. And uh, Ruth, metaphorically, emptied it into Naomi's lap. And now Ruth and Boaz lay a son in Naomi's lap. There's fullness. Underline son in verse 17, son. Naomi had suffered the death of two sons in chapter 1. And now verse 17, a son has been born to Naomi. And you could write next to that, chapter 1, verse 12, because a son, if you remember, was the very last thing she expected to have. And then underline David in verse 17. The townsfolk in verses 11 and 12 had prayed that the happy couple would join the Bible legends like Rachel and Leah and Perez. But you know, God did immeasurably more. Ruth and Naomi's son, it says here, was the great-grandfather, no less, of great King David. The king who would bring this dark period that the story takes place in the Judges to an end. And you know, living this side of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, we see these blessings here, great though they are, only actually anticipate a greater fullness than those first readers of the book could ever have realized. You see, they traced the family line in verses 18 to 22. They could only trace it to King David. But we, from our New Testaments, we can trace that line through David to Jesus, the Messiah, who would come and rescue his people from sin and judgment once and for all, ushering in eternal blessings. So if you're making notes, you might want to write down Matthew chapter 1 there so you can see that for yourself. So the blessings in our story anticipate a greater fullness to come in Christ. So how are we to think Christianly about this? This fullness. Does Ruth teach us that if we are childless, God will give us a child? If we are unmarried, God will give us a husband or a wife. Is this story teaching us that if we are hungry, God will feed us? If we are depressed, God will make us cheerful? Well, no, but why not? Well, because there's a sense in which we live at the end of chapter 3 in the story of Ruth. Yet we've entered into... The fullness of Christ, if we're believers, this evening. Think about the things, the fullness that we've entered into. Forgiveness of sins. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We've been praying about this evening. Boldness to call God our Father. The joy of conscience cleansed. The sure and certain hope of a resurrection body and the new creation. And if we are thoughtful and think for a moment, so many other blessings besides. But we are waiting for the day when all of our longings will be fulfilled. There is a day coming when God will wipe away every tear from every eye and there will be no more death and suffering or crying or pain. And this story helps us to wait with certainty and sure and certain hope, because there is a Redeemer, Jesus, God's own Son. And all of these blessings come to us through his sure and certain costly redemption. 
but we also remember that we follow a saviour who knew all there was to know about suffering and who cried out himself, Father, take this cup away from me. Take this cup away from me, Jesus cried. Yet not my will, but your will be done. And in a moment, we're going to sing together, I will glory in my Redeemer. And some of us will may be able to sing that as those whose joy is morning sun, you know, as we sing that song. But some of us will be singing it as those who are weeping through the night, sitting here with us. And I hope we're going to say, as we stand and worship in a moment, shoulder to shoulder, let's glory in our Redeemer, who waits for me, who waits for me at gates of gold. It will be all right in the end. And if it's not all right right now, it's not the end. But finally, two closing thoughts about how we think Christianly about this fullness. Number one, we must remember that this fullness came to Naomi as she turned, as she turned back to Bethlehem. And in our sin, the fact is that we are, all of us, always turning away from the Lord in myriad ways. And our every need of every hour of every day is to turn back to the Lord, to walk in repentance, to trust and obey, to glory in our Redeemer, Jesus, God's own Son. So that's really important, number one. Number two, this fullness of Naomi at the end came through kindness, came through Ruth's kindness, came through Boaz's kindness. In Ruth, God appears hidden, but his loving kindness, his fullness, is mediated through the characters in the story. And God's loving kindness today, in the same way, is mediated through us. So let's be kind. And let's encourage kindness in one another. My wife is the kindest person I know. Okay? I, I see it in the spontaneous loving kindness that she shows to our friends and to our family. And her work colleagues see it in the care that she gives to the residents in the nursing home where she works. It's what makes her beautiful to me. And I know that her warm and practical love is an outworking of God's loving kindness to her. Men, I'm, I'm challenged by Boaz's costly kindness. When I seem to know the cost of everything, okay, I know the cost of everything, but the eternal value of nothing sometimes. Yeah. So I'm going to try to take these words of Jesus into my week. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. We could all take those words out, couldn't we? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. I'm going to finish there. And I'm going to invite you to worship with me in song. 
um, and we're going to think about our Redeemer as we sing, I will glory in my Redeemer. And as we recognize that we stand shoulder to shoulder as people experiencing different things right at the moment, but let's point one another to our Redeemer. Let's stand together and sing.